And uh, with that, would you please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're looking at verses 13 and 14. Uh, Let me just say that we're going through each of these commands in verses 13 and 14. Uh, I was just saying this morning that if I could go back and restructure these sermons, they would all be just individual sermons. I never anticipated that each of these would become a sermon on its own, but that's just as I've studied, uh, I've felt the need to preach on each one of these. And so our text, if we're going to zero in on just our text from verse 13, it's be strong. There's our text for this morning. Be strong. But let's read it in all of its, um, uh, in all the, surrounded by its um, commands that go along with it. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Father, as we open your word, it is your voice that we long to hear. It is your speaking to our hearts where we are at is what we need. We need our eyes opened. Uh, We need our excuses called out. We need our weaknesses strengthened. We need hope to persevere. We need all of this, and you provide all of this through your word, and we ask for it through the preaching of your word this morning. Would you bless this time together in Christ's name? Amen. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, he admonished the Philippians to prove themselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. What, what an apt description of both our time in history as, as well as all of human history, right? A crooked and perverse generation. Every generation of mankind manifests to varying degrees, the crookedness and the perversity of the human heart. And the responsibility of the children of God, it remains the same throughout every generation. Appear as lights in the world. Hold fast, hold up, hold forth the word of life. See, regardless of how godless and contrary to God's wisdom and truth, our culture becomes, we are to live in such a way that makes the glorious Christ and His glorious truth known. And this is not something that God has called us to do in our own strength or in our own wisdom. We can only hold forth the Word of life as we ourselves hold fast to Christ, who is the Word of life. And this truth points us to one of the fundamental and paradoxical realities of Christianity. We cannot remain faithful to Christ and His gospel by our own strength, but only by the strength that He supplies. So we're looking at the fourth statement, the fourth sermon here about remaining faithful to Christ. The sermons are based on the Apostle Paul's closing admonitions here in 1 Corinthians 16. Verses 13 and 14. They represent his final appeal to this first century church in the Roman city of Corinth. We are to remain faithful to Christ. First, by adhering to the gospel. To adhere to the gospel, Paul says in verse 13, we must be on the alert. We must stand firm in the faith. We must act like men and be strong. Remaining faithful to Christ, it also requires that we love one another. Let all that you do be done in love, he says in verse 14. And so in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, we are to remain faithful to Christ by adhering to the gospel and loving one another. And so far we have looked at remaining faithful to Christ by adhering to the gospel that Paul preached to the Corinthians. Now, why do we need to adhere to Paul's gospel? Because it's Christ's gospel and all other gospels are counterfeits. There is no other name under heaven but that of Jesus Christ by which sinful men can be saved from the wrath of a holy God. Are are you safe from the wrath of a holy God? God has been patient. right? He He has sent His great captain, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is waiting for you, sinner, to lay down your weapons and to surrender 
And you'll find no better terms of pardon than that of our conquering king. Here they are. Here are his terms. Repent. Repent of your rebellion against his sovereign rule and believe on him. And you will be saved from the punishment that your sins deserve. Those are his terms. There, there is no negotiations. Take them or leave them. Repent and believe and he will fully pardon you and, and receive you to himself. He will care for you like you are one of his own children from now on and forever. He will be a better Lord and master to you than you have been, than you have ever had in your own life. Up until now, you, your life has been like the blind following the blind. You've fallen into one pit after another as you have followed the sinful desires that you have been enslaved to. But Christ can open your blind eyes and He can set you free so that you can walk in true freedom and newness of life. This, this is good news for all who have tasted the bitter fruit of their rebellion against God. The Lord's Christ, the one whom God sent to conquer all rebellion... He has come, but not with a sword. He's come with love and mercy and truth and grace. So receive Him today and live. Today is the day of salvation. So this is the gospel. And in faithfulness to Christ, we adhere to this gospel because it is our life. And we seek to proclaim it in the world by our lives and with our words so that others might also be saved from the wrath to come. But doing so amidst a generation that is crooked and perverse is not easy. There's plenty who oppose it and reject it, and therefore they seek to corrupt it and undermine it and dilute it and suppress it. And therefore Paul admonishes the Corinthians, he says, be alert. Remaining faithful to Christ and His gospel requires, first of all, that you be on your guard. Spiritual dullness is a sure way to bring, a, in, bring yourself and others you love into spiritual suffering and harm. And so we, we must be on our guard against our own sinful desires deceiving us. And sin deceives us by encouraging us to see sin in others while overlooking it in ourselves. By applying God's words to others, but disregarding its application in our own lives. So we must be on guard against this. How? By walking closely with the Spirit, daily communing with Him in His Word and prayer. Now secondly, remaining faithful to Christ and His Gospel, it requires that you stand firm in the faith. You are to be immovable regarding the truths and the hope of the Gospel because they are all staked on the historical fact of Christ's resurrection from the dead. The resurrection means that our preaching, our serving, our living for Christ in this crooked and perverse generation, that it's not in vain. And so build your faith through the means of God's Word and prayer and the gathering of God's people. Seek the Lord's help regularly in prayer. Walk by the Spirit in obedience and love and wait on the Lord's return with a confident expectation. Thirdly, you are to pursue spiritual maturity. Paul calls us to act like men. Paul's not emphasizing the need to be more masculine here, but to grow up, act like an adult. You know, spiritual immaturity is at the root of many of the problems that arise within the church. Spiritually immature believers are often the cause of strife and division because they have not yet learned through Christ that they can say no to fleshly impulses and desires that that wreak havoc in our relationships in the home and in the church. Spiritually immature believers are also unstable. They are often susceptible to believing strange doctrines. Lacking discernment, they embrace different teachers and teachings that they find in places like YouTube instead of subjecting themselves to the care of elders and shepherds whom God has raised up in the local church to guard them and protect them. But God enables each of us to pursue maturity in all the areas of our lives that matter. Faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness and love. And as we desire 
and diligently pursue maturity in each of these areas, we're becoming the spiritually mature believer that that God intends us to be so that we can remain faithful to Him and adhere to the Gospel. So that's a review of what we've covered. Each one of those points I've just went through is a sermon in and of itself. And if you've missed any of those, I encourage you to go back. You can find those on our website and you can hear in much more detail what I just briefly summarized. But we're now to our fourth command for remaining faithful to Christ and adhering to the gospel. Be strong. Be strong. But the full idea here of Paul's command is not just be strong, it is be strong in the Lord. See, if we're not careful, we can easily overlook an important implication here in Paul's command, which is that we are weak. We are weak. Because when our contemporary ears hear Paul's command to be strong, we might think that Paul is telling the Corinthians like to dig down deep. Find the necessary courage and power within yourself. And that understanding couldn't be more wrong. In fact, that's the exact opposite of what Paul is commanding us here to do. Scripture's testimony about itself is that all Scripture is inspired by God. The word inspired there, it literally means God breathed. The idea is that every word of Scripture is produced. It is breathed out by God. Not just the ideas and the concepts, but the very words themselves so that they will convey exactly what God wanted said in the way He wanted it said. And in this case, the verb that God breathed out in this command, be strong, It's in the passive voice. You can hear it. Be strong. He doesn't say strengthen yourself. He says be strong. It's in the passive voice. It literally means be strengthened. We cannot strengthen ourselves. We cannot strengthen ourselves to remain faithful to Christ and adhere to the gospel in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We need to be strengthened. There is no secret reserve of spiritual strength deep within our hearts that we can tap into that will result in faithfulness. In fact, the Bible's testimony of us is that we are weak. And that's not a flattering thought, but God has a purpose for our weakness. Our weakness, secondly, showcases God's power. Our weakness showcases God's power. That's that's the second point here. We are weak... But we can be strong, not in ourselves, but in the Lord. That is, in His all-sufficient strength that He desires to supply us in our weakness. I know when I think of weakness, my mind immediately goes to a weakness to resist temptations toward bad choices like anger, sexual lust, lying, stealing. And these are indeed evidences of spiritual Weakness and the strength I need to not surrender to such things that are uh, such things um, that are found in the Lord. That's not the only kind of weakness, though, that Paul speaks about. Let's jump over to Paul's other letter to the Corinthians and take a look at a different aspect of the weakness that Paul mentions here. Look at turn to Second Corinthians chapter twelve. It's a well-known passage that addresses strength and weakness. And I think it will help us to see that our weaknesses are more than just our inability to resist temptation. Our weaknesses can also be the circumstances that we face that make us feel and look weak in the eyes of the world. And that's included in this idea of being strong in the Lord. So what I share from this passage, by the way, was something I learned from John Piper. And so I'm grateful for his ministry as I share some of the things that he taught me. So Paul, in chapter 12, is speaking here in the third person. And he says, look at verse 2. He says, I know a man 
in Christ, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. So Paul here is attempting to describe a spiritual experience that he alone has had with God. So this is utterly unique. And it was something that Paul, uh, God, Christ chose to show to Paul in this manner. And so he's referring to it here for a reason. He, he reveals then the steps that God took that would ensure that Paul would not let this unique, amazing, spiritual experience go to his head. Look at verse 7. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, everyone wants to know what this thorn in the flesh was, but there really is no way of knowing what it was, only that it was tormenting to Paul to such a degree that it drove Paul to beg God to take it away. But God had his reasons for saying no, just as he does any time, by the way, he tells any of his children no, he has something far better in mind for them. And in Paul's case, it was, it was showing him and the church down through the ages, all the way to us, that we are to be a showcase for Jesus' power. Only not in the way that we might expect. See, Paul begs God that this thorn might leave him, but Christ says to him then in verse 9, look there, these are the words that you're probably so familiar with, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And then he says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses. And again, he mentions his weaknesses in verse 10. Therefore, I am well content, he says, with my weaknesses. But notice then that he summarizes for us what those weaknesses consist of. Right? He's in the verse 10. I'm well content with my weaknesses. And then he summarizes them. Insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties. Let's consider what each of these are just briefly. Insults are the, the clever ways that people make your faith or your lifestyle or your words look stupid or weird or inconsistent. An example of such insults is, <clears throat> I've told you about this before, is the laughter that I got after confronting a teacher, a teenager in the hallway out here uh, there uh, that, were, that come here every Tuesdays for the, the homeschool co-op that, that meets here in the building. And I confronted one of the teenagers because he had just taken the Lord's name and used it as a curse word. And the moment I turned around, the laughter ensued. But that's Insults. Insults are intended to make you regret anything that reflects you being a follower of Christ. Distresses are circumstances that are forced upon you. There are times when, despite your best efforts, things just don't go as you plan. And suddenly you find yourself in a, in a situation you didn't anticipate, and now you're trapped, and it's hard. That's a, that's a distress. Then there are persecutions. And persecutions are cruel, hurtful, painful, prejudicial, or exploitive acts from people because of your Christian faith or your moral commitments as a Christian. And it's when you're treated unfairly or unjustly simply because you're attempting to live consistently with your beliefs as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. One of the current cultural categories where you can expect to be persecuted as a Christian today is in the definition of marriage. There are Christians with businesses. These are florists, bakers, photographers who do not wish to use their talents to promote homosexual marriage. And they are being sued for attempting to live according to the biblical conviction that marriage is between one man and one woman. 
There's another interesting case of persecution that's playing out in Scotland. Maybe you've heard of it. Kate Forbes is a young, impressive, politically conservative woman who is widely considered the most qualified candidate to replace the outgoing minister of Scotland. And the problem is that she's a Christian. And she dares to take her faith more seriously than her politics. And the specific point of contention is her opposition to gay marriage. And so as a result of her stand on biblical morality, her political career may come to an end. So we need to pray for those Christian brothers and sisters that they may display God's strength in the midst of persecutions because they will likely be coming our way if they haven't already. The last one is difficulties, which are circumstances that are overwhelming. They, they weigh you down with, with stress and with tension. And so each of these insults, distresses, persecutions, and difficulties, they summarize what Paul, Paul means here by weaknesses. Notice that none of these, though, are sins. They're not behaviors either, like someone who might have a weakness for lust or anger or selfishness. Paul is not talking about bad choices that we make, right? We don't boast about bad choices. But Paul's saying he boasts in his weaknesses, but we don't boast in bad choices. These are circumstances. These are situations, experiences, and abuses that, that make us look weak in the eyes of the world. They are the kinds of things that we would rather not experience. And if, and if we had the ability, we, we would get rid of them. We would insult people, insult people right back so that they would crumble. And everyone would ad- admire you know, the sharpness of our wit. We, we would take charge of the circumstances. We would navigate through the distresses. We would turn the situations around to our favor. We would put down the persecutors so quickly and decisively that no one would even think of messing with us again. See, that's what we would like to do. We would use our resources to get us out of the difficulty so well that people would just be in awe of us. See, that is not the kind of power that we tend to have in ourselves, is it? How many times you're like, oh man, I wish I would have had that great comeback when when that person was right here. Well, praise God you didn't. Because it's an opportunity that in your weakness that you can be strengthened. When we do have this ability... Even if we do, to do all these things and work through all these different distresses and insults and stuff. See, even if we should have the ability to navigate through these things, see, we are governed by a different set of priorities than the world is. By allowing Paul to face these weaknesses, God showed Paul what it meant to be strong in the Lord. Look at verse 9. He says, Most gladly, therefore, I will, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. See, Paul even demonstrated this strength in response to the way that some of the Corinthians had treated him when he was there in Corinth. Jump back over to 1 Corinthians. Look back at chapter 4. Look at... Chapter 4 in verse 11. He says, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed and are roughly treated. We are homeless. We toil. Working with our hands. He's talking about the apostles here. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, We try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. See, Paul is saying that the strength that the Lord gives a Christian to endure abuse and mistreatment and to to have the things that reflect wealth and status, or to not have the things that reflect wealth and status and privilege, how does that look in the eyes of the world? That looks weak. It looks beggarly. 
It looks foolish. It looks inept. Especially to those who thrive on pride and status and accomplishment. But be encouraged by this, Christian. God won't let you exalt yourself any more than He let Paul. You may wonder what the the purposes of such weaknesses like this would be. What good can come from the insults and the distresses, the persecutions and the difficulties that look to the world like we're a bunch of weaklings? Why can't I find a decent job? Why do I have no friends? Why isn't my marriage better? Why does my mother have cancer? Why does nothing seem to be working in my life? Right? All things that people you're telling that you're people that you're saying I'm a Christian and they look at these things in your life and they say, Why would I want any of what you have? What purposes does God have in our weaknesses? He's using his own experience here to point us to an important truth that we need to understand. God's purpose in our weakness is to glorify the grace and the power that is in his son. In the midst of your painful circumstances, the Lord gives you the same glorious assurance that he gave to Paul to endure that thorn that was in his flesh. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. God wants to make you the showcase of the power of His Son to endure these things. Not to respond to them like the world does, but as Christ responded. And for that purpose, God allows various circumstances that appear as weakness to the world, but in which Christ's power sustains us. The purpose is, is so that we will say along with Paul most Gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And so, we are weak. We don't respond to these circumstances in our life and the temptations in our life like we should. But through the various weaknesses that we face, God desires to showcase His power. What is the nature of of the power that Christ wants to give to us. Well, thirdly, let's look at God's power for us. Let's look at God's power for us. And to do that, I want to turn to another letter of Paul's. Turn to the book of Ephesians. Go to the right couple books to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Here we find in chapter 1, Paul praying the Ephesians, but he's praying a prayer that is all about God's power. And from this prayer, I want us to see five characteristics about God's power, this power that is for us in the midst of our weaknesses so that we can be strong in the Lord. Let's read it first. Verse 18 of chapter 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So, He's talking about God's power here and these five characteristics. Here's what God says about his power. And I'll go through each one so you can try to scratch it down if you're taking notes. But I'll I'll hit each one of these. God's power is personal, supernatural, preeminent, present, and perpetual. First, we see that God's power is personal. He says in verse 19, he speaks about the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. God has made his power available to you, not just in moments of faith, as if his power is somehow contingent upon the amount of faith that we have. No, he's made it to us available at all times. As a Christian, you have access 
to the power of God to live for God in this world. And that, that statement is difficult for us to believe, mainly because we see more so the lack of power in our lives in the form of some habitual sin or a lack of boldness or an absence of love or a vengeful spirit. And we see the ongoing presence of these, these shameful practices or attitudes in our life and we conclude that we lack God's power. And there often is a lack, but not of God's power. We lack the living out of God's power. Who has access to God's almighty, supernatural, eternal, unstoppable power? You do, Christian. It's available to you, to you who believe. This, this power is available to you because of your faith in Christ, but not because of how much faith you have. God's power is not something like, like Tinkerbell. In, in Disney's Peter Pan, where the kids are urged, you know, to clap their hands in to, if you believe in fairies to keep Tinkerbell from dying. Paul is not talking about a quantity of faith here. As if God's power is only toward those who believe greatly or perfectly or unwaveringly. He's talking about a, quant, a quality of faith. Saving faith. If you have believed that Christ is the only Savior... For mankind, if you are following Him, then God's Spirit resides in you. And His power is available to you. God's power is available to you because you have believed in His Son. He chose you. He redeemed you. He made you His own. And God's power is personal because you are precious in His sight and He loves you. But second, God's power is also supernatural. Paul says in verse 20 that, that God displayed His power when he raised him from the dead. So supernatural, it means that it goes, it goes beyond any power whose origin is in this world. It's his power, it's a power whose source is found only in God. You know, when Mount St. Helens blew its top back in 1980, the force of that explosion was said to be 500 times greater than the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. That is devastating, destructive power. But it is still natural power. It is in accordance with the laws of God in nature. You know what man will, will never have the power to do? Resurrect someone from the dead. Man will never be able to give life when life has ended. Now, I'm not talking about resuscitation, right? When the heart is stopped, but it is able to be started again. I'm talking about dead for days, but then life returns. Man will never have this power because this power is supernatural. Such power is beyond natural. It exists only in God. It was that power that he used to raise, that God used to raise his son from the tomb. He'd been crucified. All the blood had drained from his body. There was no, there was no life breath left in him. He was dead in the tomb for three days. And God brought him back to life. What kind of power can bring a dead man back to life again? No human power can do this. Only supernatural power can do that. That is the power that is available to you in your weaknesses, Paul says. Supernatural power. Now, when we hear of supernatural power, we immediately associate it with something sensational. Like miraculous healings like speaking in languages that we've never heard. If and when such things actually happen, the power is certainly supernatural. It's contrary to natural laws. Such events are not a, a demonstration of a person's power. They are they're demonstrations of God's power. I don't believe that's the power that Paul is referring to here in his prayer in, in, in Ephesians or even in our text in Corinthians. God's not waiting for us to start praying that we could raise people from the dead like He raised Jesus from the dead. He's not waiting for us to pray that we could cast out demons in Jesus' name or anything like that. The reason I say this is because Paul never took us to that application in any of his letters. His application is focused on our daily walks. On your day-to-day -day living as a Christian. 
in Ephesians, Paul, if you know the layout of Ephesians, he took the first three chapters to explain some amazing theology. And then beginning in chapter four, he starts applying that theology. And and even at the very outset of chapter four. Here's what he says. Is it raising the dead? Is it casting out demons? Is it speaking in tongues or anything of that sort? No, he says, therefore, in light of what I've just told you in those first three chapters, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. My friends, you don't do that apart from supernatural power. Do you understand that? That's not to be shaken a stick at and said, oh, yeah, get to the good stuff, Paul. That is the good stuff. To walk in humility and love, that is the good stuff. Having the power to sacrificially love someone will have far greater impact and bring far greater glory to our wonderful God apart from anything anything that we might do in our lives and raising the dead or speaking in tongues or anything miraculous like that. Paul knows this. And so his prayer for the Ephesians, his prayer for us, is that we would know God intimately in order to understand that His supernatural power, it is available to us so that we can live daily for Him. We can display His beauty and His mercy and His grace and His glory to all who know us. There's more about this power that we need to know because the the devil has supernatural power too. And the devil's supernatural power that he has, is it in competition with God's power? Can the devil thwart what God is seeking to accomplish? Can Satan undermine God's power in us? Well, the next way that Paul describes God's power is that it is preeminent. God's power is preeminent. See, by God's power, Christ was not only raised from the dead, but Paul says again in verse 21 that God placed Jesus far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. And the point of what Paul is saying is that every authority that exists, be it physical or spiritual, it is under Christ. No power that exists can defeat Christ. No power that exists can gain some final victory. Not even Satan's power or any demonic power in the universe. Yes, yes, there is a real struggle between God and evil powers. Is it an equal struggle between good and evil? Absolutely not. God is the uncreated creator of all things, including Satan and his demons. The only power they possess is that which God has allotted to them. Martin Luther was correct in calling Satan God's little devil. God created Satan. And even though he rebelled against God, God still uses him. He uses him to accomplish his purposes in the world and in our lives. Yes, a real spiritual battle rages between these demonic forces and us, but God's preeminent power, it is available for us to do battle with. The power to be victorious in the daily fight, it is available to us. Don't be mistaken. Don't be distracted. Our battle is not fought by casting out demons in Jesus' name. It's not fought by rebuking the devil. It is fought by daily walking in the Spirit, daily trusting God's Word, daily praying for God's grace to daily persevere in our trials and temptations. Satan has no power over you. He cannot force you to do anything against your will. Through the cross, Christ has set you free so that you can live for Him in the moments that make up each day. That may not sound very sensational in comparison to miracle crusades or deliverance ministries, but for all who are walking in God's preeminent power, I'll tell you what, it feels sensational. It feels absolutely wonderful. Nothing compares to the joy found in walking faithfully and obediently with Christ amidst the difficulties and the trials and the pressures and the temptations and the insults and the distresses and the persecutions and the hardships that we face every day. And if you've experienced that, you know what I'm talking about. I want more of that. 
I don't get enough of that. I want more of that power in my life and to experience it in that way in daily victories, daily joy. Paul says that this personal, supernatural, preeminent power, it's available to you right now. Fourthly, he says God's power is present. God's power is present. The past, you know, it must be learned from. The future, it must be prepared for, yes. But in most cases, you know what God's primary concern is for you? It's that you live for Him today. Live for Him right now, today. I say this because Paul in verse 21, um, he, God exhibits His power by exalting Christ to God's right hand with full authority in this age, he says. This one right now. It was true then when Paul wrote it, and it's true right now. This age. Think about what that means. There's nothing, Christian. There is nothing that you need to wait for to obey God's will. There is no fleshly or spiritual uh, obstacle that can keep you from obeying God. He who sits on the throne right now is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. The Father has put all things in subjection under His feet. Absolutely no person or spiritual being can stop you from obeying Him. And here's the incredible part. Not even you can stop Him. See, when you look at what He says, and you're one of His own, not even you are going to stop Him. Oh, you may, you may say no, but God knows how to make you say yes. See, He forgave you the burden of your debt. He, he broke the power of sin in you. He turned your heart of stone to flesh. And He wrote His laws upon your heart. He, His Spirit indwells you. He has blessed you with everything pertaining to life and godliness. And He has promised that the work that He began in you, He will complete it. So you don't have to wonder if there is something else to be done or, or beg God to give you more of what you need. Not only has God not withheld any good thing from you, but He has given you everything you need to live for Him. The same power that raised Christ from the grave and exalted Him to God's right hand, it is available to you right now and in full measure. What are you waiting for? Stop giving ground to an already defeated enemy. Stop obeying a former master by God's power, you can start living according to the victory that is yours in Christ today. Paul's full point in verse 21 is not just that God's power is present, but that it is also perpetual. So the final characteristic of God's power that we're looking at here is that God's power is perpetual. Christ has full authority, not only in this age, but he says also in the one to come. God's power is lasting power, eternal power, power that goes beyond the grave. Who, who would you say is the most powerful person of the last century, of the 20th century? Was it Stalin? Was it Lenin? Maybe you'd say Hitler. How much power do any of them have today? They have none. Zip. Nada. It all ended when they died. It was temporary power. The power that God has made available to you, it is altogether different. He gives you lasting, perpetual, ongoing, eternal power that is sufficient for this present age as well as for the ones to come. And that power, it is at your disposal and that is amazing. This is the power that Paul says that he will help you so that you can stand firm every day even though all the powers of hell are aligned against you. And you may be thinking, well, if this power is available to me, I am certainly missing out. And you may, in fact, be missing out, but not because it is unavailable. Christ's promise to the first church back in, in the book of Acts, in the opening of that book, in chapter 1, he says, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. 
They lived out this power and did exactly what he said that power was for. And they were just normal people like you and me. Every Christian who is truly born again has the Holy Spirit indwelling them from the moment that they are saved and he will never leave them. And as a result, you have at your disposal personal, supernatural, preeminent, present, and perpetual power to daily experience God's miracles of obedience, of faith, of love, of hope, of perseverance. And so, yes, we are weak. But through our weaknesses, God can display His all-sufficient strength and power. And this is what Paul is calling us to experience in His command to be strong. Be strong, not in yourself, Christian. Be strong in the Lord. But let me address what I think is the common nagging question that we have about God's power in our lives. Why don't I see the evidence of it like I would expect? Why do I see more evidence of my weakness than of God's power? Why does sin's power seem more evident to me than God's power? Isn't that a question you have? That's one I have many times. Now, I I can't completely answer that question in just a a single statement here in a sermon. It it really needs to be more of a discussion, which I would encourage you to have with perhaps your discipler, maybe one of the elders. But here's what I will say. Paul's call to be strong in the Lord, it is really a call to a vital, intimate, personal, dynamic, dependent, honest relationship with Jesus Christ. A relationship that is characterized by a genuine desire to follow and submit to and exalt and love Jesus to the degree... That you are willing to forsake all other loves, all other delights, all other pursuits, and all other powers that compete with His good, wise, and sovereign will. See, Christ has all the strength that any Christian needs to overcome any temptation that they could face. But see, you will not experience that in your life to the degree that you can until you have decided in your heart to forsake all other conflicting interests and desires. See, until you reach that point, you're just playing games with God. You say He's your Lord while you bow down to other idols in your life. And you're just going to go on lamenting your lack of power to resist the same temptations again and again. If that's your choice to go on playing games with God and not really forsaking these things, keep letting them be a part of your life through the decisions you do and don't make, you can be thankful that He is a patient and a kind Father. But since you are His child, just know that your unwillingness to forsake your sin, it invites His Always loving and often painful discipline. And those whom the Lord loves, he says, he disciplines. And that discipline is corrective in nature. And sooner or later, it will make you willing to finally repent of that which is not good for you and not honoring to him. But you have a different choice. Maybe... I would say it is a better choice. And it's available to you today. You can make this choice. You can spare yourself the pain and the discouragement and you can repent today. And you can start walking closely with Christ and availing yourself of the ways by which you experience His power in your weakness. You can open up His Word with a genuine desire 
to hear from Him and obey what He says. You can depend on Him in prayer. You can ask Him for what you need. You can hide His Word in your heart. You can refuse to forsake gathering with the saints for fellowship and encouragement. See, through such simple, ordinary means of grace, God imparts strength to us who are weak. Well, I want to do it a different way. Okay, well then this will just keep on going. Can I, can I keep this in my life and, and do these other things? Probably not. You'll just keep going as you have been, lamenting the lack of power in your life. Can I not tell anybody about these things I struggle with and just work on them in private? Possibly, but most likely no. You need help. You need encouragement and prayer from fellow sinners who don't want to judge you but want to come alongside you and encourage you. Two are better than one. He wants to impart strength to you through these simple and normal means of His grace. And they are available to you so that you can remain faithful to Christ. You can adhere to His gospel and you can do so even amidst the crooked and perverse generation in which we live. Let's pray. Father, we would love to be able to say along with Paul that we can give you thanks for our weaknesses because through them you show your all-sufficient grace and strength and power. We know that you have done everything through Christ to be set free. We are free indeed because we have been set free by the Son of God. And we want to walk in that freedom. But we can't be walking in that freedom and still also keeping one foot in the world. There comes a time when we have to decide that we are all for Christ. We don't want to be lukewarm. We know that sickens you. It should sicken us. So help us to be all for Christ. To be all in for the Lord. His power is sufficient for us when we are all in for Him. Help those who are struggling with that decision to choose to follow Him fully today, just as He said, to count the cost, to bear the cross. There is joy there. There is fulfillment and satisfaction there. There's peace there, not like the world has or offers. It has none. And that is where we should long to be. And we ask for this help in Christ's name. Amen.